You're listening to Yesterday's Wine. I'm Nadia Ramlagan, and I'm talking with Barbara Martin Stevens, author of Don't Give Your Heart to a Rambler, a new book about her life with bluegrass great Jimmy Martin, whom she met when she was only 17 years old. Barbara became his partner and then booking agent. She went on to become the first female booking agent on Music Row. So it's 1953, you're 17 years old, you're working in in a coffee shop at the Tulane Hotel in Nashville, which I guess was a great gathering spot. Well, a lot of the Grand Ole Opry musicians lived at the Tulane Hotel at that time. We served breakfast and lunch, so they could walk from the Tulane Hotel down to the Ryman Auditorium where the Grand Ole Opry was. Most of them didn't have a car. Jimmy had a car, and he came in the coffee shop every day, and he would... uh, When I first met him, he asked me to go out with him, and I told him, I said, if I want my daddy, I'll go home and get him, because Jimmy was 25 years old, and I thought of him as very old, And um, but he was a very good-looking man, even at his age, I thought. (laughs) And it sounds like he was pretty charming, too, in those early days, and you two immediately had, it seems like, a very intense uh, romantic connection. We had a very good romantic connection, and he was charming. He was charming all his life. He never lost that charm, even right up to the end. You write when you met Jimmy that he could barely write his own name, and you two spent hours practicing. Well, Jimmy never had the opportunity to get any kind of education. Uh, When he did go to school, which was more than just a little more than third grade, He went to a one-room school there in Snedville. He, um, his mother and dad, uh, stepfather, they made him work on the farm, so he wasn't able to get an education. Anyhow, I used to sit on the bed. Jimmy and I would sit there for hours teaching him how to write. He could print a little bit, but not very much, but he wanted to write. We sat there, and I taught him to write his name. And he would get, he was so proud of that. He would um, just write it over and over and over. And then he got to where he would try making the M different or the J different so that he could see how it was going to look when he signed autographs. You also mentioned that from the very beginning of your relationship, he, he told you that he wanted to be a star and he wanted to be on the Grand Old Opry. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. At the time, did you think that you you knew exactly what that meant in the, in the kind of life that would you know have to be led? Well, I did know what it would mean. And Jimmy did want to be a star. We talked about that over and over. He was hesitant about quitting his job with Bill Monroe because he didn't know whether he could do it on his own or not. The two of us together decided, yes, he would go ahead and quit, and we would go somewhere else. And that's when he got in touch with Smokey Ward at radio station WPFB in Middletown, Ohio. And at the time, Jimmy didn't have a band. And so on our way from Nashville to Middletown, we went through Lexington, Kentucky, which is your hometown. Jimmy heard J.D. Crow playing on the radio station there and stopped and called him. And we went out to J.D.'s house. And his mother and father told them that 
When J.D. got out of school in the summertime, he could come and work for Jimmy. This was in March of 1954. And so we went on to Middletown, Ohio, and Jimmy picked up a band there. And he worked in Middletown with Smokey Ward for quite a long time, about a year. And I have to ask you, uh, has J.D. uh, read the book? Do you know? I don't know. I have not been in touch with J.D. in a long time. I hope he has. And uh, But I do know of some of the other people that have read the book. I know that Doyle Lawson has read the book, Ronnie Reno, and several other people. My book was the number one bestseller ever at the IBMA in Raleigh, North Carolina, this past September. And so that was an um, absolutely awesome experience. Well, congratulations. That is extremely awesome. And to say I loved the book. I love how uncensored and well-written and raw it was. I wonder what it was like, you know, for you now, being in your 80s, to reflect on on that time and, and your thoughts about being there, really, at the birth of the commercial country music industry. You know, Nadia, I never thought about being the first female booking agent on Music Row. I never thought about what I was doing when I was doing it. I just knew that I was doing something I really loved. And uh, just maybe three years ago, uh, someone from the Nashville Historical Society called me and wanted to talk to me about doing an interview for the preservation of Music Row. And so I flew to Nashville and did that. And then I started thinking, Well, there were no other women doing this thing when I was doing it in 1955, 58, whatever. And um, so that's when I decided, you know, that maybe I should let people know that I was a booking agent. Now, when you two moved to Ohio and he got the job at radio station WWBA, were you, had you started booking at that time or was it until you two moved to, made the move to Detroit that you actually started booking him informally at that point? When we moved to WPFB in Middletown, I had not started booking him. I had never been involved in the music business. And so my role at that time, I got a job as a waitress and was to help support the two of us uh, because Jimmy wasn't make, probably making $15, $20 a week at WPFB. And uh, so we had to live, and my earnings helped us live. Uh, when we moved to Detroit with the uh, WJR Barn Dance in Casey Clark, that's when I really started getting involved. I started writing the letters to disc jockeys and packing the records and mailing them out. And we couldn't call because at that time, phone calls were very expensive. And I also worked a day job, and uh, Jimmy took care of our son, Timmy, during the day. But that's when I first started getting involved. And then it wasn't until 1958, and we were in Shreveport, Louisiana, at the KWKH Hayride, Louisiana Hayride, that I really... Uh, started getting involved in booking, and that was because Jimmy had no dates, no show dates at all. We were only had the income from the Saturday night Louisiana Hayride, and so at that time I said, you know, I believe I can do what Tillman Franks does. Tillman Franks was book, the booking agent for uh, all the acts on the WWVA Jamboree, but at that time he was concentrating solely on Johnny Horton 
in the Battle of New Orleans. And so Jimmy said, well, if you think you can do it, do it. Well, Jimmy Davis was running for governor of Louisiana, and he had a lot of Grand Ole Opry acts coming to appear for him at his venues. And so I contacted Earl K. Long, who was running against Jimmy Davis. I had booked Jimmy and the group with Earl K. Long for a week. Well, Earl K. Long fell out of the race because he was hospitalized. And so I said, well, maybe I can get the other guy that's running, who was De La Sips Morrison from New Orleans. So I contacted him. He booked the show for a week. So that was my very first entry end of the field of booking. So starting, let's let's backtrack a little bit because I still want to talk to you about uh, leaving Ohio. And in, in Ohio, you become pregnant with with you and Jimmy's first child. And you move from Ohio to Detroit for the barn dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got this gig at the barn dance. I loved your descriptions of, well, number one, Jimmy Martin eating pizza for the first time and discovering Chinese food, which I thought was interesting. And um, and the large crowds that came out for bluegrass at the time, it just seemed like, you know, you could really feel the the enthusiasm of the crowds and how theatrical everything was. And and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that scene in Detroit. Well, at that time, Detroit was a booming city, and there were thousands of people from Kentucky and. Tennessee and West Virginia and Alabama, all working in the automobile factories there, and U.S. tire and rubber. And so Casey Clark had a barn dance at 12101 Mack Avenue in Detroit, and it was filled to capacity, um, probably held, I'd say, probably 750 to 900 people. And every Saturday night, it was Filled. Jimmy was with the Osborne brothers at that time, and when Jimmy and the Osborne brothers would come on stage and sing one of their RCA Victor Records, 2020 Vision and Walking Around Blind, when they hit that opening of that song, the crowd would be yelling and screaming and standing and just couldn't stop. I don't care who was there. If uh, every Saturday night they had guest artists, would be Farron Young, Whip Pierce, Johnny and Jack, and Kitty Wells, Skeeter Davis. A lot of the Grand Ole Opry acts would come there on Saturday night to play. But regardless of who was there, Jimmy and the Osborne brothers, when they hit that stage, they were the only act in town. They also did a little skit. Bob would dress up like a woman. Jimmy and Bob would talk to each other, and Jimmy would ask Bob questions, and Bob, in his high-pitched voice, would answer Jimmy just like a woman. And he'd wear his high heels and carry a bag, and it was so funny. Okay, so at this part in the show, I'm going to pause and play never-before-heard audio of Jimmy Martin and his band playing at New River Ranch in Rising Sun, Maryland. The year is 1961, and again, no one's ever heard this up until now. I want to thank Joe Lee for these unreleased recordings, which were made by the late Leon Kagarize. You'll hear a few more tracks later on in the show. While they're getting their clamps off, reach me them songbooks there and records, Zeb. Thank you. Zeb and the boys will have them out here, passing them among you, and we'll autograph them for you if you'd like, me and all the boys. 
Our songbook here on the front page, small picture of myself, and also on the next page here, it's a picture of all the Sunny Mountain Boys, a little write-up about them. Also a picture of myself taken down to WSM in the studios, autograph picture there. Also a write-up here, a whole page story, tells you how I got my first guitar, and Bus and Coy and all the boys knows how I did that plowing corn a quarter a day. You've heard all hillbillies saying how they got their first guitar, sawing logs, digging ditches, and I all of that. I stole mine! <laughs> <laughs> And tells you, tells you how long I've been in country music and where the big stations I've played on since I've been recording and all of that. And also tells you where I was raised and what part and where I was born at and how come. Yeah, also a few folks would like to join our fan club. Our fan club president's picture's in here too, a blind girl, Judy Steinberg. And also her address. If you folks would like to join our fan club, you can get that. Also names of some of the songs we have out on Decca. Songbook sales for two quarters are 50 cents, two for a dollar. The boys will have them out here and we'll be out here autographing, standing over there. If you folks would like to buy our songbooks and records, we appreciate it a whole lot. Of course, we don't need the money. It's the people that me and Paul William O is pushing us for their part. So buy our songbooks if you can. Here's a song called Heidi Diddle. Sam. I don't tell you, let Sam stand up there. I was about to forget. Up, That's Paul Williams, his brother, wrote Heidi Diddle there. Let's give him a big hand, huh? Stand up, Sam. That's the fellow that wrote the lyrics to it, and we just murdered it for him. That's it. Okay, you fellas ready?
we're back talking to Barbara Martin Stevens. Things between you and Jimmy are, well, from the beginning, you say he was starting to become pretty aggressive and possessive. And things seem to be escalating as you moved from Nashville to Ohio. And now we're at the point where you're in Detroit. And some pretty disturbing, you know, horrendous and violent things were were going on in terms of his physical and emotional abuse towards you. And at one point, your children got taken away from you. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. My, my son, Ray, was born in Detroit. And he only weighed four pounds. And so at the time, uh, his lungs were not developed as well as they should have been. And so he kept getting pneumonia over and over and over. The doctors told us that if we wanted Ray to live, we had to take him to his mother, uh, to Jimmy's mother's or somewhere out of the state. And because we had no place else to go for Jimmy to work, we took him to Jimmy's mother's house. And uh, she took care of Ray for the next nine years because Jimmy refused to go get him. I came home from work one day, and there were notes there. Jimmy had left me a note saying that he and J.D. had taken Timmy to his mother's, and he had taken all of his clothes, and he wasn't bringing them back. I threw a fit. I, I, I was livid. And I cut up all their clothes, which was not a good thing to do, but I did it anyway. I flew to Nashville, got a car, and went to Sneedville to get my children back. But I was met with a shotgun on the porch and told to get in my car and leave. Well, Timmy saw me, and Timmy was about four years old at that time. And he came running out, and I said, get in the car, Timmy. And Timmy got in the car. Well, I couldn't go in the house and get Ray because I was going to get shot if I did. Jimmy's mother kept telling me to him to get out of the car. Timmy, I told Timmy, I said, don't get out of that car, Timmy. You stay right there. Well, he stayed, and I got in the car, and I drove away. And it would be nine years before I was able to get Ray that was a heartbreaking time. In 1969, Jimmy took Lisa and Buddy and was only supposed to keep them while I had surgery, and he kept them until they were 15 years old. So, right, and I, I also lost wanted my to children min- over and over. Yes, you lost your children repeatedly, and Lisa and Buddy, just for people who might not know this, were your two later children that you had with Jimmy Martin. So you had four children with Jimmy. And um, you had a son from a previous marriage that was, uh, I I got the impression Jimmy refused to let him live with you because he wasn't kin. That's exactly right. He always said he's not blood. He's not living with me. And that must have been horrible for you to be separated from your It, it was terrible, but I wasn't as separated from him as I was from Ray because my mother had Mike and I was welcome there at any time, whereas with Ray, I could only see Ray with Jimmy if I went with Jimmy to Sneeville. So after I left Jimmy, I didn't see Ray anymore until the day he came at my, to my door in 1971. It was very painful, very, very, very painful. You met Jimmy in Nashville, you moved to Ohio, then you moved to Detroit, and then Jimmy gets this gig at the Louisiana Hayride in Shreveport, Louisiana, and you you move down there. And at this point, things are getting really, really bad. You know, one thing that really struck me was he it basically got to a point between you two where he 
he wanted to almost entrap you, like leave you without a car, without any money, basically without any means to escape the abusive relationship? Well, in his mind, and you've got to remember, we're dealing with an uneducated man who was probably one of the most talented bluegrass music performers or country music performers ever. But he was totally uneducated. He did not have a mother and father. His father died when he was four years old. His mother went on to remarry and had three more children. And those children, by her second marriage, were all babies. The other group were grown up. So she didn't have time for loving and tenderness. I don't think that Jimmy's problems were faults of his own. They could have been in later years, you know, he could have corrected those. But he didn't come from a loving home. No one walked up and put it, put their arms around him and told him that they loved him. And so his way of keeping someone and keeping me was to leave me without money or without a car or transportation. I always fought back. So even then, if I didn't have money, I'd call my mother and my mother would give it to me. Or if I didn't have a, a car... I'd call and ask for an airplane ticket, and they would give that to me. For you, what was it like, you know, the beginning process of starting to write the book? Was it therapeutic? Was it purely painful, or maybe it was a little bit of both? Writing the book was, um, I think, one of the best things I ever did uh, for myself. All my memories just started flooding out. It wasn't a difficult thing. I didn't have to do any research because I remembered everything. When I first started writing it, I thought that I was going, I would be able to tell why Jimmy wasn't on the Opry. And that was his goal in life, was to be on the Grand Ole Opry. So I wanted to tell the truth. I had seen so many things out there, comments, videos, where Jimmy would say, I'm not good enough for the Grand Ole Opry. That wasn't true. That was the furthest thing from the truth. And it was a defense mechanism that he had put up and created for himself to keep his embarrassment from showing. And, and that's my, my belief, because Jimmy was good enough for the Grand Ole Opry. Jimmy was better than most on the Grand Ole Opry. He helped people. He was a good person. Writing the book made me realize what a really good person he was. He had his problems. He had his faults. We fought but still, he was a really good person. He would help people when they were needed help. And I think that uh, most of his problems just stem from other women. He was a star. He couldn't stay away from other women. they come up to him, you know, and tell him how great he was, and he just ate it up. Do you want to tell us the real reason Jimmy Martin did not get onto the Grand Old Opry, or should we save that for people to get the book and find out for themselves? Well, it might be a little surprise for them. <laughs> All right, let's keep it a secret. So if you guys want to, <laughs> listeners out there, find out why Jimmy Martin didn't get into the Grand Old Opry, pick up don't Give Your Heart to a Rambler by Barbara Martin Stevens. So you all have moved from Detroit to Shreveport, and I really love your descriptions of life in, in Shreveport because it sounds, despite all of the terrible things that, you know, might have happened there, it also seemed like you had a really uh, wonderful time there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Shreveport was a special place. We had our problems there, but over the most part, we had a wonderful time in Shreveport. 
We fished every day because I could get off from work whenever I wanted to as long as my work was done for the day. And so I would come home, and we would head out to one of the lakes. We skied. Um, we just had a great time. It was a good place, and we had a lot of friends, Merle Kilgore and his wife Dot, Carl Ballou, uh, who wrote Stop the World and Let Me Off. Um, Carl was a big star on the, w on the Louisiana Hayride at that time. Johnny Paycheck, Farron Young was there a lot of time, uh, the time, and uh, Shelby Singleton and Margie Singleton. We just had so many friends there and such a good time every Saturday night. Just good times. Now, at this point, you, you actually leave Jimmy twice, I believe, just because the abuse had gotten so bad. But you came back. I did. And you say in the book that you think the reason that you came back was because of your children. And I, maybe I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Well, I left Jimmy. The first time I left Jimmy in Shreveport, we had only been there for maybe uh, a week. My, my son, Timmy, ran across the floor grate uh, where the heat came out and burned his feet. And Jimmy blamed me. And so he punched me in the face, and I had two black eyes. So when he, I had him arrested, and um, while he was in jail, I took Timmy and left. I did not come back for several months, and he finally came to Detroit. I went back to Detroit where I could get a job. I went back there, and I got a job, and my grandmother had died, and she had left me some money, and so my mother said, why don't you take that in Mama's car and go ahead and trade it in? So I did, and my grandfather paid the rest of the money on the car so I wouldn't have a payment. And I moved back to Detroit with Timmy, and I had a job and was doing really well. And he came back to Detroit to get me. Well, I went back again, and it wasn't long before he threw an iron at me because he had a date that night, and that was his pattern. If he had a date, he'd make me mad or he would be abusive to me. And so when he threw the iron at me, I decided then I was going to leave, and I left again. And at that time, I had the car, and so I went to Detroit again and went back to work. My sister was living there at that time, so she and I lived together. But it was, a, it was that pattern. Uh, that was the time he wrote, she's left me again, and it's not like home unless you're here. And so he wrote those, those two songs about you. Yes, he did. And then he wrote another one, which was a little happier song, which was called Hold What You Got, I'm Coming Home Baby. And that was after following a telephone call. He called me from the road, and I told him something, and he decided to write the song, Hold What You Got, I'm Coming Home Baby. And we got back together in uh, Shreveport, and after Shreveport, I really didn't leave him again until 1966. I want to break from my conversation with Barbara and play another recording from New River Ranch in 1961. It's good to see you folks here in Rising Sun enjoying the singing that we do and we have out on record. There's another request. I see right now 
We thought that Decca Records wasn't getting us out too good, but everywhere we go from Force here to Las Vegas, Vegas they're asking for our songs, ain't they, Paul? Force making us feel real good. Yeah. You folks are making us feel at home here today, too. It's good to see you, though. Take a good picture of Zeb there. <laughs> what was we had? You going home? Here's a request that somebody sent up for. Was the other one for Georgia Rose, too? Voice of my Savior. Voice of my Savior? Georgia Rose. Let's get a little bit of Georgia Rose. Let Paul Williams sing something for you, okay? talking to Barbara Martin Stevens. So after Shreveport, you two moved to around uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. Is that Went to WWVA Wheeling, West Virginia, to the Jamboree. At this point, you have formed the Barbara Martin Booking Agency, and you, you, you're starting to do some pretty serious booking work, and other people are taking notice of your skills. Well, that was in Wheeling. Uh, that's when I really uh, started booking people. Did you ever think that you would make booking... Uh, a, a career out of it? Did you think, okay, this is what I'm going to do? I mean, you mentioned in the book that your confidence was really boosted when you started to have success at booking, and um, that appears to have coincided with maybe the final end of your romantic involvement with Jimmy, or maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong. Well, um, I did want to make booking my life career, but 
I never thought about it. When I left Jimmy, I thought that my career was over. First of all, I didn't have the money. I didn't have any money when I left him. Um, so I didn't have the money to support myself. And 15% of $100 at that time from a, or 150 from an act just wasn't enough to live on. I did try booking one other time, opened an office on 17th Avenue, but I just couldn't, I couldn't do it because I had two children to support. You couldn't make the money to support them. At the time I left Jimmy, I never thought about asking Doyle Wilburn or one of the Wilburn brothers or Hubert Long or somebody like that to give me a job. I'm sure they would have given me a job and I could have stayed in the booking business, but I didn't think about that. My thought was, I left Jimmy. I didn't want to be involved around him, with him, or even talk to him at that time. But I love the booking business, and I think you're right. I think that the skills that I had then certainly apply now. So in the book, you you do mention you, you, uh, you open up a, a talent agency and move to 16th Avenue South, or as it, we call it today, Music Row in Nashville. Uh, and you also mentioned that you were named a Kentucky colonel. I was named a Kentucky colonel, and I was the first female Kentucky colonel on Music Row. Not ever, you know. Um, But a friend of mine was at the fair convention in Alabama. We were in Alabama at the fair convention. We were riding back to Nashville together, and he said, are you a Kentucky colonel? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, would you like to be? I said, sure, why not? He talked to the governor at that time, and, or whomever he had to talk to, I don't know. And the next thing I knew, I was made a Kentucky colonel with all the privileges and everything of that commission. I have uh, always loved that, that I'm a Kentucky colonel. You describe the story of being in the hospital uh, after your, your son Buddy was born and asking permission to get an IUD put in asking the doctor, and the doctor basically says that your husband has to give permission for that to happen. And Jimmy said no. He did, two times. He said no two times. I wanted times. it when Lisa, when I, after I had Lisa, and Jimmy just would not hear of it. And then again, I approached the subject when, after Buddy was born, I was determined I was never going to have any more children. And Jimmy absolutely said no not even going to talk about it. He would not sign any papers. So I talked to my doctor, and my doctor said, well, the only thing we can do, you know, is to give you an IUD. And I said, well, he won't sign for that either. And I can't take the pill because I didn't have any money to buy medicine with, and we didn't have any insurance. And so the doctor said, well, he doesn't have to sign for the IUD. And I said, okay. And so we put the IUD in. Jimmy never knew the difference, but I never got pregnant again. That's right. But but later on, you, you ended up having some, some pretty bad health problems from from the IUD. I and I guess it was the still the early days of various birth control methods. You know, back then, women were not like they are now. They didn't have a choice. If you were married and you had a husband, they had to sign for everything. We were not free like we are now. I've always said, you know, that if birth control had been around like that and available at that time, I wouldn't have had so many children. I had a, I had a, uh, an abortion in Wheeling, West Virginia, right after we moved to Wheeling, and I tell about that in my book. It wasn't something that 
I was proud of or anything, but it was a choice I had to make at that time. Women should protect their rights right now. It's true. You do talk about the story of, of, of deciding that you two couldn't handle any more children at the time. You didn't have enough money. Your children were scattered in various parts of the country. And and you, you talk about, you know, what it was like to have an abortion at that time. Now, I want to ask you, because it seems like you you put all the stories in the book, but was there anything that you wanted to put in the book but didn't? No. Um, when I was writing the book, I had a surprise. I found out that Jimmy had a son in Shreveport, Louisiana, um, but never knew about the child, uh, according to the child himself. He never told him. His mother never told him. So uh, I found out about him, and that was really quite a surprise and a shock because that was where Jimmy was writing the songs about me and wanting me to come home. You know, I had a lot of stories I could have told, but I, did, I chose not to tell them. Just uh, want people to understand how Jimmy was. He was a very troubled man. He was uh, an embarrassed man because he never got on the Opry while other people that played for him or played with him or worked with him were made members of the Grand Ole Opry. He was a caring person, and uh, he had his faults. And I think at the end of his life, he uh, stopped his drinking and made some amends. You know, in 2003, there was a documentary made about Jimmy Martin called The King of Bluegrass. I actually watched it the other night. Um, I have to say, I had seen it a couple years ago, probably uh -huh. a couple years after it had first come out. But watching it this most recent time, having read your book, um, uh -huh. I had a different reaction. And I felt like there were certain moments in the film that I that I misread the first time. And this time around, your your book really provided some context. And one thing I noticed is at almost every moment of introspection that he has in that film, he starts to cry. I mean, he, could, he couldn't talk about the past without, without crying. I wonder, you know, at that point, he was two years away from his death. I wonder if he was thinking about you and, and the way he treated you and his children and if all of that was just sort of bubbling to a surface. But you do get a sense of how repressed he was, how emotionally repressed he was. And I'm wondering what you think about that, you know, watching, watching that documentary. Well, I... I... I watched that in the beginning, and I was shocked at Jimmy. I, the cussing, and I, I just didn't like all of that. Jimmy was a very, very caring person and an emotional person. He could, he cried, and he was not ashamed to cry. I, I believe that Jimmy was depressed. I believe Jimmy spent many years of depre in depression. Not that anything that he would say, I'm depressed, you know, he wouldn't say that. And he wouldn't think that. And if someone else said to him, Jimmy, you're very depressed, you need something for that, he would have said, I'm not depressed, because he probably didn't know what it meant. I'm not a fan of that video, I can tell you that. Now, what is it about that 2003 documentary that, that sort of rubbed you the wrong way? Was it the way Jimmy was acting in the film? Yes, yes. Going out to get the dog and talking about the drinking and, and the cussing and the four-letter words he, were, he was using, those, that's what I didn't like. 
And you feel that wasn't a tr really a, a, a true portrayal? It was a of show. His, yeah, he was I just on felt like it was a show. Now, just to clarify, were you ever actually legally married to Jimmy Martin? No, I not at all. I would not marry him. He asked me to marry him in Shreveport, Louisiana. I could not marry him. At that point in time, I was not in love with Jimmy. I wanted to be with Jimmy because of my kids, but I was not in love with him. I had fallen out of love with him. Things did get better. They got better in Shreveport. They got much better in Wheeling, and he bought me the rings. I wore them as long as I was with him. I just never would marry him. I guess I was ahead of my time. I didn't want to get married. Yes, you were more like a, a, a millennial at that point. <laughs> my mother didn't know that, you know. So you wore the rings, and your mom, your mother assumed you were married, and everybody else did, but you, you two never actually legally got married. No, but, you know, years ago, years before that, when uh, Jimmy and I moved in with my grandparents, he told them we had gotten married, and they never knew the difference. Now I want to ask. I want to ask you. You are um, describing some pretty amazing things in the book. You you were with Loretta Lynn when she picked up her first custom-made dress. You you talk about baby showers, which if you you read the lineup, it's like an all-star lineup of of country stars. Um, what you were good friends with people like Patsy Cline um, and Gene Shepard. You know, after after you remarried and kind of and you moved to Florida and had a different life, did you still keep up your your music relationships that you had with some of these women and men? And if not, um, what has it been like coming back into the the musical fold with this book? Well, uh, there would be times when I saw Loretta Lynn in Florida or Jean Pruitt. I saw Jean in Florida one time. Um, Wilmerly and Stoney and Wilmerly's sister, Jerry Johnson and Peggy Gale, I was always in touch with them, never out of touch with them. Uh, cousin Jody's wife, I was never out of touch with her. But then uh, when I would go to Nashville, Chuck and I would go to Nashville, I would go to the Grand Ole Opry with my son Ray once in a while, and uh, I would see Jean or I would see Benny Birchfield, or I'd see the Osbournes or someone. Now, coming back into the music business, everyone has really accepted me. It was, it's as if I never left, and I'm so amazed by that. Eddie Stubbs, he's one of my very best friends. Eddie just, at Jimmy's funeral, he asked to interview me, and I thought, what do you want to interview me for, Eddie? You know, but... Uh, Eddie and I have been really good friends, and when I started writing this book, I reached out to Eddie. Eddie says, absolutely, and he remembered me. And so then we had coffee in Nashville, and I gave him three chapters of my book. And I said, do you think this is something that I should continue? And he took it home and read it. And before I got home, I had a message from him. Absolutely, this needs to be done. And... So he was one of my my big fans in getting this book written and to where I am today with it. A very special thanks to Joe Lee for the Jimmy Martin recordings and to Susan Alcorn for theme music. We'll go out with another unreleased track of Jimmy Martin playing at New River Ranch in 1961. This is Yesterday's Wine. God guide our leader's hands. 
dear God, please watch and guide our greatest leader of all nations so that they may understand that a war with these mighty destructive weapons would destroy us all upon this earth and land. Oh dear God, please. 